Welcome to Unbalanced.mn, an open investigation into the Freedom Club and the media network that surrounds it. I'm your host, Logan Carroll, and I have got a show for you this week. It's got mimetic engineering, it's got wolf kids, it's got all the great stuff you've come to expect. Okay, this week we got a fact check triple threat. Three claims, one article. The piece is, as colleges move to do away with the SAT in the name of diversity, Detroit High School valedictorian struggles with low-level math. Now, Alpha News republished it from the conservative outlet Daily Caller, which, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, has a problem with constantly being linked to white nationalists. Now, the claims in this piece are mostly technically correct, but grossly miscontextualized. One. We start with the headline, Detroit valedictorian struggles with low-level math, and the tagline, universities have loosened their requirements to attempt to increase graduation rates and diversity. Now, the implication here is twofold. First, that schools are somehow cheating to boost their numbers. Um, as the article says, these efforts are aimed at helping administrators boast of on-paper improvements. And second, that students of color are unable to school to the same degree and the same numbers as white students. Now, to demonstrate both of these points, the piece opens with the example of Markel McClendon, the valedictorian of her class at Detroit's Cody High School. Now, the Alpha News article, or the Daily Caller article, holds her up as an example of inflated grades, a woefully unprepared student from a school so bad its valedictorian can't handle remedial math, brushed undeservingly into college because she's black, all in the name of diversity. Uh, however, <clears throat> the article they cite is headlined with a quote from McClendon. I just have to work hard for it. As Detroit students settle into their first semester of college, these programs provide needed support. Now, according to Chalkbeat, uh, it's a news organization that focuses on educational reporting, McClendon was an A-plus student in high school, a record she continued in college, except for math, which, after seeking help and studying hard for, uh, she got a B on her midterm. To be fair to Alpha News, or rather to be fair to the Daily Caller, the allegation that McClendon is struggling with math comes from the Chalkbeat article. To be honest though, Alpha uses the word struggling to mean failing, while the original article used it to mean working hard. Two. School districts have turned equity initiatives over to for-profit consulting firms like Corwin and the Crescendo Education Group. Joe Feldman, CEO of Crescendo, wrote in 2017 that not only is it prejudiced to grade based on whether a student gets the right answers, it's inherently prejudiced to penalize a student for not doing his homework at all. These two sentences are interesting juxtaposed next to each other because the first seems to imply that diversity programs are a cynical cash grab by for-profit companies, and the second seems to imply that those same cynical for-profit companies are too starry-eyed and idealistic. Uh, but anyway, the core claim here that Joe Feldman wrote that it is inherently prejudiced to penalize a student for not doing homework. Well, here is what Joe Feldman wrote in the piece they are citing. In schools that align their grading to their school cultures, 
Homework scores aren't included in the grade. Students are accountable for doing the homework, but homework is redefined. He goes on to explain that grading could be based on cumulative final knowledge, stressing that homework is about learning and making mistakes, but that you shouldn't penalize students for the mistakes they make while learning. Uh, he follows it up with this anecdote from a middle school teacher. When I was a kid, I couldn't ask my mom and dad to help me with my homework because they were immigrants, and they knew less English than I did. The last thing that I want my students to experience is to fail a class for not being able to complete homework and classwork. It's not really their fault. I don't want what I went through to happen to my students. I can't penalize a student for not having their own quiet space at home to complete a homework assignment or because of language barriers. So Feldman is getting into the weeds here with an educational theory about how to grade homework and where that fits into the larger theory of education. And he specifically says, again to stress this, that students are accountable for doing the homework. He did not say it. It's inherently prejudiced to penalize students for not doing homework. Three. Sort of the kicker for this piece, that is the very last thing that the article says, is this. Justin Pickett, a criminologist at the State University of New York in Albany, said November 10th that five academic studies that found racism in various aspects of society were being retracted for severely erroneous or fraudulent data work. So these pieces, these studies, are about things like the role of social context in anti-black and anti-Latino sentiment in the U.S. criminal justice system, and whether the number of black people lynched in a U.S. county 100 years ago influences whether white people in the same area today perceive black people as a threat and favor harsh punishments for them. They were not definitive end-all, be-all studies on whether or not racism in education is real. Hell, none of them even touch on education. This piece is a prime example of manipulating and misrepresenting information to support an ideology, rather than letting your beliefs flow from reality. I've wanted to do a dive into the crime coverage of the media network that surrounds the Freedom Club, especially Alpha News, which is, to all appearances, simply a project of the Freedom Club. So this week, I started really digging into that. Now, I got a pretty thorough content analysis of their crime coverage done, which is going to comprise most of this episode, before I realized that all their coverage comes from another source, something called the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network. Now, I started pulling on that thread, and holy shit, it's one of the most interesting things I've come across. It was much too big, and I came across it much too late for me to shift focus after practically finishing this week's script. The Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network is a network of eight Facebook pages, a website, a Patreon, and an Instagram page, run by between 5 and 20 anonymous users. Their content is problematic. Anonymous authoring and an intentionally opaque organizational structure with multiple connections to the Freedom Club-controlled Alpha News. Their coverage disproportionately is slanted towards crime committed by black people, especially Somalis and Muslims, and they have partisan advocacy so deep it can't be separated from who they are and what they do. Now, they're surprisingly big. Uh, several of the Facebook pages have followers in the tens of thousands and have been highly effective at presenting themselves as nothing more than neighborhood volunteer organizations. 
it's entirely possible that their work is coming across your Facebook feed. You might be digesting their content without even realizing it. But that investigation is ongoing, uh, so we'll get into that in more detail in the next week or maybe two, depending on how much I can actually pull together. Today, we're going to look at Alpha News's actual crime coverage, which is going to start out being all professorial and shit, but I promise we'll get onto the wolf kids of Minneapolis really quick if you're patient. Usually, when we talk about memes, we mean a picture with some words printed over it, but that's not the original meaning of the word. Uh, it was coined by Richard Dawkins in the late 70s and was kind of a metaphor that compared culture to biology. Where a gene is a single unit of biological transmission, a meme is a single unit of cultural transmission. So, for instance, those rhymes you learned on the playground as a kid were each memes. That old Kilroy was here graffiti was a meme. Urban legends are memes. It's not all fun and games, though. Uh, for example, one researcher, a guy named Richard Petch, used the idea to study terrorism and identifies school shooting, uh, the act of mass murder in a school setting, as a meme. Now, what he means by that is that, like an isolated and alienated individual who's looking for an act of extreme rebellion, just kind of finds this idea lying around American culture, mass murder in school, and just splices it into their own worldview and forms a specific plan of action around it. Now, various individual memes can build on each other and kind of glom together into something called meme complexes. Think of these as ideologies or worldviews. Some intellectuals think of racism as a meme complex. There's one more idea I want to touch on lightly quick, uh, memetic engineering. It's a super geeky word, but it means creating memes with an eye towards changing human behavior. Think next level propaganda that encompasses images and story structure and just the stories that are presented, not just the words that are presented. I've spoken to several experts on propaganda, and some of them are leftists, and they all stress that propaganda is a neutral term. It's not inherently bad. It just means propagating information. Like, this podcast is an example of propaganda. So, don't think of memetic engineering as inherently nefarious. Like, public health campaigns are examples of memetic engineering. The point is, don't get hung up on the connotations here. This is all very academic so far. I know this is all super dorky, thanks for bearing with me, but I find these ideas extremely useful as a frame to understand and analyze the content created by the media network that surrounds the Freedom Club. Take one meme complex that's been evolving on their sites. I call it the Wolf Kids of Minneapolis. Alpha News in particular does extensive coverage of crime, but despite labeling themselves as a Minnesota outlet, they cover crime almost exclusively in the Twin Cities. This, that Minneapolis in particular and the Twin Cities in general is a lawless hellscape, is the first meme that comprises this meme complex. For example, this passage from the Deplorable Housewives post, Minneapolis says yes to strippers and no to Trump. Minneapolis is now the city where kids hunt victims in packs, like wolves, stealing cell phones, delivering beatdowns, and causing mayhem. As you might expect, the coverage does not represent underlying statistics. A key claim is that violent crime has surged in Minneapolis over the last year, uh, which is kind of true. 
but it's still down from the three years before that, and still historically low. In fact, according to a recent FBI report, Minneapolis is one of the safest cities in the nation. So their crime coverage is dead wrong generally, but it's also dead wrong in a very specific way. Uh, MPD and uh, the St. Paul Police Department don't make arrest info by race readily available, and they haven't responded to my Freedom of Information Act requests yet. But here's what I can tell you. Racial disparities in the criminal justice system aside, in 2019, about 37% of the Minnesota prison population was black. The traffic stop number is a little higher. Uh, about 47% of people stopped in 2019 by the MPD were black in cases where the race of the driver was recorded. In St. Paul, about one-third of the people stopped were black, again, when the race was recorded. But on Alpha News, of the crime stories that had a photo of the perpetrator or suspect, a full 78% were photos of black people. 83% were people of color. That means that despite comprising 57% of the Minnesota prison population, 48% of the traffic stops in St. Paul, and 31% of traffic stops in Minneapolis, white people were shown in Alpha News crime stories only 17% of the time. Also, while less than 1% of Minnesota is Muslim, and less than 3% is Somali, 22% of their coverage that included photos was of Muslims or Somalis. They also have articles like Crime, Parking Concerns, Overshadow Plan for African Market in Cedar Riverside, and Mob with Hammers Descends on Minneapolis East Bank LRT Patrons. Now this article specified that the mob were Somali and attacking anyone who was white, but it was sourced exclusively from a report heard on a police scanner and a single anonymous social media post. This unfounded and misleading racial element is the second meme in the Wolf Kids of Minneapolis meme complex. If Alpha News has a favorite genre of crime reporting, it's stories of repeat offenders, a fact often highlighted in the headlines and the slugs. There's nothing inherently unusual about this. I tried to find a number about how much crime is committed by repeat offenders, I found a PolitiFact article that listed several studies that looked for this number, and the bottom line is that, depending on the methodology and the population studied, for instance, uh, like youth in Philadelphia in the 40s, violent criminals in Sweden in the 60s and 70s, American teenagers in 1996, and so on and so forth, approximately 50 to 81% of crime is committed by some small percentage of the population. And the percentage of Alpha News articles that are about repeat offenders, it falls within this range. What's interesting is the framing. Now see if you can see what I'm talking about from these headlines. Plea bargain, stayed sentence for repeat offender convicted in Green Line robbery. Series of plea agreements stays reduced sentences for suspect prior to crash that injured girl. Man who received stayed sentence following 2016 crime spree, now in custody on probation violation. In each case, the sentencing, stays, reduced sentencing, etc., is given first billing over the actual crime being reported on. They have been, at times, explicit about uh, their agenda here. For instance, in the article, 
sentencing guidelines, is it time for change in Minnesota? They write, when asked about the county attorney's responsibility to the public and their responsibility to help ensure public safety that would protect innocent lives, Lazuski said that the county attorney can only work within the structures given to us by the legislature. The piece argues that responsibility for repeat offenders lies with the Minnesota legislature. In other articles, they're more specific about the blame, DFL legislators. In one of these, uh, it's about the blue line, they quote State Representative Paul Torkelson as saying he'd received complaints from transit users that they didn't feel safe when riding the train or bus. Torkelson is a Republican from Haskell, Minnesota, a hundred miles from the blue line. The same piece highlights the efforts of Representative Kurt Doubt, a Republic from Zimmerman, Minnesota, 50 miles north of the cities. According to the piece, he called on urban Democrats who hold all of the legislative seats within Minneapolis and St. Paul to get tough on urban crime. This piece did publish comments from DFL State Senator Bobby Joe Champion, saying that local officials were the better choice to handle local crime than the state legislature. But this was one paragraph drowning in a sea of accusations of local officials losing control of their city to roving bands of wolf kids. These are the three basic ideas that underpin Alpha News' crime coverage. First, that Minneapolis in particular, and the Twin Cities in general, is overrun with crime. Two, criminals are overwhelmingly black people, especially Somalis and Muslims. Three, local officials, especially DFLers, are guilty of allowing the situation to develop because they're soft on crime. Together, these three memes form the meme complex the Wolf Kids of Minneapolis. This meme complex is very similar to one of the core myths of right-wing populist propaganda. Chipperlay is an academic and an investigative journalist who specializes in uh, right-wing populist movements. And he described this uh, very fundamental myth like this. This is from a speech he gave at Trinity College back in 2016. So, how does a conspiratory storyline story work in, in right-wing ideological um, populism? Well, it paints a picture of betrayal and subversion um, of the American dream by parasites picking the pockets of the deserving productive citizens. Um, these are parasites who are often portrayed as people of color or immigrants. And it's linked to a claim that treacherous plotters above in government and, and elites, secret elites up above, uh, are plotting uh, with these parasites below. So it's a double-edged um, kind of sort. Now you can see a lot of overlap between the Wolf Kids of Minneapolis and this myth that Berlay is talking about. They don't line up exactly. There's a few differences. Now the biggest is that the myth that Berlay is describing exists sort of on a national scale. It's about, like he says, a threat to the American identity and the American way of life. Whereas the Wolf Kids of Minneapolis is a little bit more local. It's about a threat to us in Minnesota um, and us in the Twin Cities. It's also a little bit less explicitly conspiratorial in nature, at least the way it appears uh, on Alpha News. The Democrats are more painted as starry-eyed and naive about the way the world works than they are uh, inherently conspiratorial. But one of the hallmarks of memes, according to the academics who study it, is that they can be remixed. 
that they can evolve over time and change in subtle ways. It makes sense that Alpha News, which purports to be local news, would localize this national conspiracy. And when you localize it, when you make it a little bit smaller and tighter, it sort of becomes a little more difficult to allege that there's like a secret cabal. You can imagine there's a secret cabal in Washington, D.C. It's, it's a little harder to imagine there's one in St. Paul. Now, propaganda here, again, is a neutral term. I interviewed Belay, and he was one of the people who really stressed that there's nothing inherently bad with propaganda. There's nothing wrong with pushing a political agenda. But there are two problems with this specific example. It's not based in reality, and we don't know who's advancing it. Of course, there's the fundamental problem with Alpha News hiding their connection to the Freedom Club and the associated GOP donors and strategists and policy wonks, but there's an added twist to their crime coverage. All of Alpha News's crime coverage, at least since the beginning of this year, is attributed to the Minnesota Crime Watch and Information Network. It's posted under the name MN Crime and includes a slug at the end of each article that reads, Minnesota Crime Watch and Information offers citizen-powered news, info, and commentary about crime, public safety, and livability issues in Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, and greater Minnesota, and includes a link to the network's Patreon. Some of the pieces use, add as a header image, the network's logo. But it's not that quite clear-cut. First, many of the pieces attributed to MN Crime Watch are written in the voice of Alpha News. For example, in September, City Pages published an article calling Alpha News' crime coverage racist. The rebuttal to the piece is headlined, Minnesota Crime Rebuttal to City Pages Hit Piece. Not Alpha News' rebuttal, but Minnesota Crime's. And this is one of the pieces that uses Minnesota Crime's logo as a header image. So it's written by Minnesota Crime, right? Well, the actual piece clearly presents Alpha News' rebuttal. For instance, in this passage. City Pages, that bastion of local journalistic integrity, thinks they've unclosed a vast racist conspiracy in Alpha News' recent crime coverage. Let's look and see exactly what is perhaps the real conspiracy they've inadvertently exposed. Or this one. On Tuesday, City Pages published what was designed to be a hit piece on Alpha News' recent crime coverage. As it turns out, it's really an indictment of our local media and a projection and reflection of their own closeted racism. Outside of the headline, the header image, and the boilerplate Minnesota crime slug at the end of the article, the piece doesn't mention Minnesota Crime Watch. In other words, in this piece, Alpha News and Minnesota Crime Watch are written about as interchangeable entities. So, is Minnesota Crime Watch just another project of Freedom Club? It's not clear, but I don't think it's that simple. For one thing, all the pages in the network were created years before Alpha News existed. For another, well, it's weird. In one piece, the author, identified as the Minnesota Crime Watch Network, cites a Facebook page of the network as though it were an outside source. For context, the piece is about the Hennepin County Sheriff making some data not easily accessible by the public. In response to those changes in the jail roster last month, Crime Watch Minneapolis, one of the groups supporting the new petition to reverse encryption, launched a public call to action for the restoration of the address and birth date data on the jail roster, and posted the request on Facebook. Ten days later, the group announced that the sheriff had placed a notice on the jail roster website saying that the address information was being restored. 
Now, in this passage, it's not we did this, but they did this. Another article does the same thing, attributing the piece to Minnesota Crime Watch and then writing about them like they're an unrelated organization. Here's the passage. A search of social media pages that regularly post crime reports from police scanner broadcasts indicates that problems like robbery and assault are occurring during daylight hours as well along Hennepin and Nicollet Avenue. One report on Minneapolis Crime Watch described a particularly bold Sunday afternoon assault. Further confusing things, while Alpha posts as Minnesota Crime, the Minnesota Crime Network's website has reposted some of those articles and attributed them to Alpha News. So who's behind the Minnesota Crime Watch Network? What is their relationship with Alpha News? Well, I'll be pulling on these threads this week, and if you tune in next week, I will tell you everything that I'm able to. Now it's time for the read of the week. Read of the week. It's a doozy this week, titled How Socialism Would Abolish Holidays from Intellectual Takeout. First thing to know, the headline is a bait and switch. Here's how the piece begins. If you enjoyed a hearty Thanksgiving meal last week with your family, you have a personal incentive to oppose socialism. Extreme egalitarians would like to ban these kinds of family celebrations by abolishing the family! The bulk of the article is a fever dream of thought from a seemingly random assortment of sources. Like, this one time, I did way too much speed, and my mind started racing, and I was thinking about the white stripes and CSI, and I went from one to the other and back and back and back so fast that for a moment, I completely forgot which was the rock and roll band and which was the police procedural TV show. That's the only analogy I can think of for this article. Here's the New York Times saying liberals don't want to destroy the family, and the UK Guardian claiming that it's actually capitalism that will destroy the family. Now, an aside about prostitution, the fact that the functions of marriage can't be commodified, far from being the newest frontier of capitalism, is the world's oldest profession. No time to think about that, though, because here's Engels praising free love, and then on to Charles Fourier and Robert Owens, but like no explanation of who they are, so I hope you know, because I don't. But they all know that socialism can't destroy the family, but don't worry about how that's kind of the opposite of the point of the article, because now it's on to John Rawls. Even when fair opportunity is satisfied, the family will lead to unequal chances between individuals. Is the family to be abolished then? Well, is it? Is it? I still don't know, because we're back on to Marx and Engels, who proposed the abolition of the family and replacing it with an openly legalized community of women, followed immediately by a note about the Israeli kibbutz system. And we're only halfway through the piece. We still have to get to the Australian Communist Party, feminist theorist Sophie Lewis, the academic Gabriel Andrade, two unnamed writers in Salon, British philosopher Adam Swift and his partner Harry Brighouse, and noted philosopher Melissa Harris-Perry before wrapping up with one paragraph each about Christianity and capitalism. The piece is only 1,200 words long! Holidays aren't mentioned again until the very end in a note about how capitalism has reduced the cost of the average Thanksgiving meal by 26% since 1986. That is truly a cause for Thanksgiving, the author finishes. 
And that's our show for this week. If you've been liking this, if you want to see it keep going, I need a little bit of support. This is the time where you can give back for all the countless hours that I've been pouring into this and blood and sweat and tears. All I need from you is to maybe just share it on your social media. Uh, just point it out, tell your friends about it, tell your family about it, tell your therapist about it. I, I, I don't know. It's, maybe if there's any graffiti artists, you could graffiti it out. Music this week was custom made by my brother Dan Carroll, uh, who has been doing all the music. Uh, special thanks to him. And you can find us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Yeah, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if you have any complaints, if you have any threats, if you have been working at the center of the American experiment and you just want to leak some shit, like, yeah, let me know. You can reach me at logancarroll at gmail.com or logan at unbalanced.mn or you can find me on Facebook at unbalanced.mn and on Twitter tweeting at unbalanced.mn. M N again. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station.